0: Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Liam gave us an overview of the whole Bible. Liam is one of the leaders at Christchurch London, and a regular speaker and writer on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Okay, we're going to leap straight in and think about scripture today. And I should say, um, I, I'm one of those sort of speakers that's really happy to take questions. Uh, I, I hate it if you're in a room like this and people are like, I didn't get that thing 20 minutes ago and I just can't concentrate now because I haven't got that question answered. So if you have questions, ask them. Uh, if I don't know the answer, I'll pretend I do and say some big words to make you think I've answered your question, but no, I won't. I'll be honest if I don't know the answer to the question uh, and maybe Andy will be able to help me out. But um, I'd love to take questions. And there may be some key points where we take questions or you may ask a question. I think, oh, we're gonna cover that later. So I may shelve your questions, but I would love to hear from you rather than you just sit there in silence and not get what I'm saying if I'm not being clear enough. So do ask questions at any point today. But we're gonna leap right in and think about the Bible. And of course, when we talk about the Bible, there is so much we could talk about and we just don't have time to cover everything I'd like to cover. So there's a whole load of stuff that we won't focus on today. We won't think about how the Bible was put together. We won't be able to think about inerrancy or infallibility or inspiration of scripture or any of those kind of big themes. I happily talk with you about them, but we just don't have time for everything. Um, So what I want to do is sort of leap in and think, well, what is scripture and how do we engage with it? And basically my Goal for today is to lay a foundation for the rest of the course, and as Andy said, each time you will look at a particular book of the Bible or genre, and you will look at a particular doctrine. And today's not quite like that. So if today is boring, don't worry, it's not always going to be like this. Um, Today is going to be slightly different, but I think it will lay the foundation for the whole course. We won't get to look at each different genre of scripture and how to engage with those, but actually that's the point of the rest of the two years. Hopefully today will just give you an intro and a foundation for it. And so I want to kind of begin by thinking about uh, what scripture is and therefore how we should engage with it. What is the Bible? And don't turn over the page in your notes right yet. Someone to ask you a question. But the Bible isn't a single book. I mean it it comes in single book form but actually it's a collection of books it's more like a library because it's all these books that have been compiled together and they are very different books and just like when you walk into a library you don't expect every book to be the same like you expect to have fiction over here and cooking over here and history and uh, all different things like so too when we read the bible we shouldn't expect that everything is going to be the same we can engage with every book in the same way you don't go into a library and get confused when you've read a novel you be like that and then you picked up something else and it doesn't read quite the same like you understand that different books in a library require different levels or, or approaches of engagement the same is true with scripture there are 66 different books which fall into various different categories and those categories broadly are narrative law wisdom poetry prophecy apocalyptic gospel and epistle and what I, just I, without looking at your notes just I want to just kind of get a sense of how you think about scripture so I'm going to shout out some of those categories and I just want you to say like What are the books that come to mind for you from from the Bible that fit into those categories? So if we talk about the narrative books of scripture, what kind of books come to mind? Kings. Yeah, Genesis. Yes. Yep. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Yes. Interesting. So this actually, I mean, that's not a wrong answer. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, Yeah. Great. Okay. Go to law. What kind of books come to mind for law? Leviticus, everyone's favourite, yes. Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy, yep, yeah. yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Uh, wisdom books. <laughs> Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, yeah, great. Um, poetry. Psalms. Psalms, yeah, Song of Solomon, someone said, yeah, yeah. Some people might put that in wisdom, actually, which is interesting, but yeah, I would put that in poetry. Uh, prophecy. Ezekiel, yeah. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. I'm going to keep going until you've named all the major and minor prophets. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, yeah, all these sorts of ones. Um, apocalyptic. Daniel, Revelation. This is interesting. No one's named any New Testament books until this point. That's, well, unless you did and I didn't hear them, but there you go. Apocalyptic, yeah, Daniel and Revelation. Although some people would say Daniel, is it narrative? Because some of it is, isn't it? I mean, chapters one to six very much is. And... Um, uh, and, and then actually some of it is, it, is it apocalyptic, is it prophetic? Well, these aren't clear categories, like there's blend between the two, so that's, uh, that, that, that's totally fine. Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, well done, good, 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 good. Um, epistle. Well, you don't need that. It's just the rest of the New Testament, isn't it? But like Acts, for example, where does Acts fit? Is it narrative? Is it narrative? Some people will say it's sort of gospel in style. I, I'm say you, it's, it, it's clearly not one of the gospels, but it is part two of Luke. So in, in one sense, it follows the same sort of patterns. So these aren't like hard and fast categories, but it is helpful to realise that they're not all the same. And so you can't pick like Song of Songs over here and think I'm going to read that in exactly the same way as Chronicles or Nehemiah or Ezekiel. Like you have to engage with each of them differently. And there are different approaches required. And actually, you can look at your notes now. You see a a sort of table that I've drawn up, which roughly breaks them down. And if you look at that, what you find is actually the literary genres are more diverse in the Old Testament than the the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament basically is gospels, acts, so they're kind of like narrative ones, then the epistles, and then... Revelation, which is apocalyptic and quite unusual. But apart from that, that's, that's, that's basically the New Testament, isn't it? The Old Testament is far more diverse, which perhaps is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is harder to get our heads round. The difference, though, between the Bible and a library is that I don't go into a library and expect that I can pick up a book over here and a book over here and they will have anything to do with each other. I don't expect that they're going to cohere or agree. Whereas when I turn to the different bits of scripture, I'm being like, well, that book is completely different to that book, but there's something that holds them together they're united. And I believe that's because they have one author. Mm -hmm. That's God. Um, Of course, many human authors, but one person governing it all together. It's not like a library where I'm like, well, those are completely different or they disagree. I believe that all of scripture is compelling and it's united, um, but we still need to engage with the different bits differently. And part of this course actually is to help you both think through the doctrines, the, the particular themes and messages that run through and unite the whole of scripture, but also the different books and the different genres and you will do that throughout this course brilliantly. I would put it to you that the whole of scripture teaches one story, which is the story of God. And I want to begin with this whole first sort of section by thinking about the story of scripture. Before we think about how it applies to our lives, I just want to think what story does it tell about God? So next page of your notes, Uh, first bit of group work. What I'd love you to do is just spend in your tables or in your rows, I'd like you to spend about, let's say, seven minutes or so um, discussing these three questions. What is the story of the Old Testament? Uh, Obviously, you don't have to write out the whole thing, but if you were to try and summarize it in uh, 20 words, two sentences, something like that. What is the story of the Old Testament? What is the story of the New Testament? And what is the story of the Bible? I don't know whether that seems like an easy or a difficult uh, task, but you've got about seven minutes or so uh, in your tables. Um, what is the story of the Old Testament? What's the story of the New Testament? What is the story of the Bible? Go. OK, um, I'm not going to ask you all to to tell me your stories, but I'm interested. How did you find that? Was that hard or easy? hard, hard. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> that wasn't an option. That wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Let's break that down a bit further. Um, which, which was the hardest? Old Testament, New Testament, whole thing. Whole, Old Testament, whole thing. Was that just because it's there's so much of it? Was that the yeah? yeah. And so many different strands. I find that go in different directions, different themes. The the New Testament seems a bit more. Yeah, condensed. Okay, well, I'm not going to ask you all to read out your stories, um, but uh, let me read to you a 100-word sum- summary by a theologian called Greg Beal. Um, actually, it's 107 words, but he's cleverly used some hyphenation to reduce down the word count. But, uh, so this is it, and it's a bit dense, um, so don't worry, but I'll kind of it will hopefully make sense. He says, The Old Testament storyline that I posit for the basis of the New Testament storyline, which is just ridiculous language, um, is this. The Old Testament is the story of God who progressively re-establishes his new creational kingdom out of chaos over a sinful people by his word and spirit through promise, covenant, and redemption, resulting in a worldwide commission to the faithful to advance this kingdom and judgment, which is defeat or exile for the unfaithful, unto his glory. Quite wordy, but essentially um, God, yeah, God is bringing uh, order out of chaos, he's bringing a new creation, um, and that is going to result in a commission to people who are with him to, t- to just take this message to the, king, uh, to the world, and, uh, and judgment, which is defeat or exile. Uh, to the unfaithful. The New Testament, then, he says, the New Testament transformation of the storyline of the Old Testament, that I propose, is this. Jesus' life, trials, death for sinners, and especially resurrection by the Spirit, have launched the fulfilment of the eschatological, already not yet new creational reign. I'm sure this is exactly how you wrote down the thing <laughs> as well. Um, <laughs> Bestowed by grace through faith and resulting in the worldwide commission to the faithful to advance his new creational reign, resulting in judgment for the unbelieving and unto the triune God's glory. Should I read that again? No, I won't read that again. Like, okay, that's really dense. It's really dense. But actually, I I think... I think it's kind of helpful because what we see from that, even if we like, don't take the time to process what he's really saying, is this. There's actually similarity between the Old and the New Testament. So he sort of said, you've got the Old Testament storyline, which is this, and then the New Testament transformation of that storyline. So it's kind of a continuation, but at the same time, it takes it in a different way, and, and it's the <coughs> fulfilment of much of what started there. And he uses some big words because he is a very academic writer. But actually, what I love about that, if you do take the time just to think about it, is it's so rich. He's not like, This thing happened and this this thing happened and then it carried on. Like He's like, there are all these strands of sort of Trinity and and sin and what it means to be human and the kingdom, even in the Old Testament. And and then Jesus picks up this theme and he brings it to fruition. He sends out the uh, people on mission and there's results for whether you believe in him or not. And It's just such a rich theme. As you look through the whole story of scripture, there's this continuation, but then there's just theme, 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 theme that come all the way through Old Testament and New Testament. And in a sense, you are gonna spend two years unpacking that hopefully in more an accessible way but you are going to unpack both the story itself which is continuing from old testament to new but also all the big themes that come up like what does it mean to think of the trinity is that just something we only learn about in the new testament where jesus comes on the scene oh no it's actually there at the beginning as well what does it mean to think about sacrifice Is, is leviticus the only place that can help us understand that oh no it comes up here in the prophets and in the new testament as well and you are going to go through scripture both getting a sense of it as a story but also a book that is full of incredible themes and I'll come to that in a second. If I were to try and summarise the whole sort of meta-narrative, the grand story of scripture, I would probably say it's something like this. Um, It's a story of creation for redemption and restoration creation form, redemption and restoration. This is not the way I've broken it down, many scholars have done it like this, but essentially if you were to summarise the whole of scripture, it begins with God creating a good world in which everything is as a He intended it, but it's not complete because he sends the people out to do things, to enlarge uh, the Garden of Eden. And don't worry, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. But to to go out on mission, to continue God's work in the world, spreading it throughout the world, spreading uh, goodness, truth and beauty throughout the whole world and the knowledge of him. And then something goes wrong, the fall, Genesis chapter three. Everything unravels as humanity gives up our God. Uh, our God-ordained purpose. We put something other than him in the primary place, in the tr- primary driving seat of our lives and everything unravels and essentially the fall takes you all the way through at a national scale. What happens to uh, to Israel right through um, from Genesis 3 all the way through the prophets and they go into exile and back and into exile. And it's just a mess and then you get to Jesus and you get chapter 3 or act 3 which is redemption. He comes to start redeeming things and you get the whole life of Jesus and I won't summarize that now but the final act is rest restoration, when he comes back and he makes everything as it once was, only actually better, when he comes back at the, uh, at, at the second coming and makes the new creation. And if you were to try and summarise scripture in those four categories, I think that would be quite helpful and far shorter than Beale puts it. So creation for redemption, restoration. We will come back to that a little bit later, but I see a hand at the back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the question, if you didn't hear it, and for the recording, is: um, uh, Did redemption actually start earlier um, with, uh, well, I guess a whole, whole lot of things like choosing people, election, sacrificial system, etc.? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, I'm not saying like, Jesus, suddenly it comes on the scene. So many seeds were sown in the Old Testament, which is beautiful because then you see the unity of it. Um, but I think when <coughs> Jesus comes, it's the fulfilment of all those things of, you know, he is the substance of which those things were the shadow, as Hebrew puts it, Hebrews puts it. Um, so, yes, um, but there's something distinct about the coming of Jesus that, that changes that. Yeah, yeah. And we'll kind of come back to that in a second when I um, we we'll get into actually what is the narrative of Scripture and I break it down a little bit further. Um, but this, I think, just that kind of ridiculous wordy uh, section from, from Beale there, actually highlights something quite interesting because we can see Scripture as a story but also is a collection of really dense, really interesting and really powerful themes as well. And I don't know how you think of the Bible, whether you think of it primarily as a story or a place where you go to learn about particular themes. Actually, it's kind of both. And so I want to just take a moment to sort of unpack two different approaches to theology, which you may be familiar with or you may never have heard of um, before, and either is totally fine. But you're going to encounter both as you go through this course. So that's why I just want to spell them out for a little bit now. So next page Um, I want to just just highlight two things about two different approaches to theology, which are broadly known as biblical theology and systematic theology. Um, Now, often when I teach this, people go, isn't all theology biblical? And well, yes, in the sense that all theology is well, should be uh, derived from Scripture. But there is a difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. And without sort of laboring the point too much, This is roughly how they divide up and it's kind of generalised, but biblical theology is an approach to reading the Bible that traces the unfolding history of God's revelation to and redemption of his people. Biblical theology is generally organised historically, so it kind of goes through almost like chronologically, and it asks, how did people understand God and his work at this point in salvation history? So wherever you are in scripture, if you're doing biblical theology, you're asking, at this point in the story, how did people understand God? How do people understand God from from their perspective, right there, where they were in history, what they were experiencing, what they were writing about, and I think one of the strengths of biblical theology is um, is that it doesn't, I think it has a great appreciation for the diversity of scripture, because you're not reading a passage and then immediately thinking, how does that fit with something that was written, you know, two centuries later? You're you're taking each book and you're asking questions that are appropriate for that genre. So you're not expecting that the wisdom literature in Proverbs, for example, is going to say everything that needs to be said on a particular subject. Rather, it is a point in time where people are grappling with the themes in a way that made sense to them based on the revelation that they had and needs to be fleshed out by then looking at other stuff that comes later in scripture so there's quite a in biblical theology i think there's a great appreciation for the diversity of scripture and themes that are distinctive to a particular book or a particular author without rushing to synthesize it elsewhere There are, however, some weaknesses, and um, I think some of the weaknesses is that actually, if you are processing through scripture and you read a little bit and you read Proverbs, for example, and you're grappling with what Proverbs says about, I don't know, good and evil or something like that, and you think that's all there is to say on that subject, and you don't then tie that up with what Jesus then comes and says later, you can end up with an incomplete thing. So there is actually a powerful thing in just reading through the scripture and, and understanding what's being said at any given point in time. But really, if you are to get the best out of it, you also need to see it as a unified story. And you do need to take these bits in this chapter and apply them uh, along with the other bits. And that's where systematic theology comes in. See, systematic theology is a slightly different approach, which uh, synthesizes and summarizes what the Bible as a whole teaches about topics like God, humanity, Christ, self, salvation, etc. Systematic theology is organised topically. So it asks the question, uh, not how did the people in exile understand this particular theme at this particular time, but how does the whole Bible talk about this particular theme? What does the whole Bible teach about the doctrine of humanity or the doctrine of, um, you know, second coming eschatology or whatever it happens to be? Systematic theology has a strong emphasis on the unity of scripture and asks what is the full extent of truth we can know about this doctrine, which is really great. One of the downsides of systematic theology, though, is that sometimes it can feel like someone has gone. Oh, I need something on um, the Trinity, so just look for it. Well, actually, if you <laughs> if you search for every verse on the Trinity, you find nothing because the word's not in Scripture. But so that's, that's a bad example. But um, uh, the Holy Spirit, let's say, someone's gone. Oh, okay, I need a systematic theology of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's find Everything about the Holy Spirit. Bam, and it's just like here are all the hundreds of verses, and you give them equal weight, and um, and it just feels a bit like. Have you, have you just plucked out all of the verses and, and give sort of not really thought about how you should treat each one? you treat them all sort of the same and I, I can find sometimes systematic theology is a bit frustrating because it doesn 't take into account the fact that actually some of the revelation in the Old Testament may not be complete and so you can 't necessarily give it the same weight as something Jesus said. so there are some strengths and weaknesses to both, but I think you need both approaches actually my uh, when I studied. Um, My Masters in Theology, I I focused on Biblical Theology uh, and I did a couple of courses in Systematic Theology and it was fascinating because it helped me to understand things about Biblical Theology different, but they are very different um, disciplines. But they come together and they come together beautifully in this course that we are doing here. Let me uh, try and explain how I think they come together this is a quote from a guy called Verne Poitras. He says, at their best, biblical theology and systematic theology interact and help to deepen one another. Systematic theology provides doctrines of God's sovereignty, of revelation, of God's purposes, and the meaning of history that supply a sound framework of assumptions for the work of biblical theology. Biblical theology, at its best, deepens the appreciation that systematic theology should have for the way in which, in interpreting individual texts and uncovering their relation to a whole topic, the context of text within the history of redemption colours the interpretation. So both helps one another. So systematic theology gives us uh, a good framework for reading the Bible as a story, but then actually reading the Bible as a story and taking into account the different genres and the different points in history helps us to understand the flavour of it in a way that systematic theology sometimes kind of misses. Biblical theology may also bring to light new themes, he says, that can be a starting point for systematic theological explorations into new topics that can receive fuller attention. For instance, the theme of life and death as it develops in the course of the history of Revelation can become the starting point for discussing ethical questions about modern medicine and the issue of euthanasia. Essentially, systematic theology and biblical theology come together in a way that should help us to engage with scripture and to get loads of different things out of it, but also not do damage to what was really happening in the text at the same time. Does that kind of make sense? I feel like it didn't make sense to me. Let me try and, uh, let me try and ground it in, in in a kind of a metaphor. And this is one that a friend of mine uses, a guy called Matt Hosier. Um, uh, he he says, uh, think of it like this. Uh, if I were to um, want to show you where I live, say uh, I don't know why I want to let any of you know where I live, but there you go. So, like, say you, you, you said to me, where is the area you live? What I could do is, on my phone, I could get up Google Earth. And from here, I could kind of zoom out and see, like, here's the whole planet. And then I could zoom into London. And then I could zoom into to the particular area of southwest London where I live. And you could see the place that I live. And I could show you the outline of my house and all that sort of stuff. Um, if I were to trust you with that, that knowledge. So, I could, like, zoom right out. So, global perspective. London perspective. Local perspective. My <coughs> house. And that's great. But actually, if you would ask me, show me where you live because you want to go to my house, that's not going to help you get there at all. That gives you a broad perspective. But if you want to actually get to my house, you need a detailed map, don't you? You probably need Google Maps with directions. And then when you get to London, you might need a tube map. And the funny thing about the tube map, the London Underground map, is it actually bears no resemblance whatsoever to geographical reality. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Like, some people get out of one station and, uh, or oh, sorry, they travel between two stations and they get out of the station, and they look and they're like, oh, it was just there. Why did I just travel here? Because on the map, it looks like the same distance as another long journey. Really, they're just across the road and people don't know that if you think that the map bears some kind of resemblance to geographical reality. Now, that is the difference, I think, between, and Matt, Matt uses in his illustration, it's a good Illustration, but it's not mine. I should just have taken the credit for that, but there you go. Um, that's the difference between biblical and systematic theology. Biblical theology is the kind of theology that takes into scope the whole s- sort of sweep of scripture and it's broad and it's big, and then you can zoom in here. What does the wisdom literature say? And this is beautiful, and, the, and you get right down into depths, and what did this writer think at that particular time? How does that fit within the grand narrative? But if you actually want to use scripture to figure out particular themes, it's not very helpful. It's more like Google Maps. What what you need sometimes is someone that can say, well, my version of theology doesn't necessarily do justice to the whole sweep of the story, but it's usable. It helps you to navigate scripture well. So let's group together all the themes about the Trinity or about the Holy Spirit or whatever. Do you see the difference? So biblical theology is like the broad Google Maps. Systematic theology is like the tube map, as it were. And you need both if you were to understand the whole context, but also if you were to navigate it well. Does that make sense? Yes, Okay, I feel like I've just given you a barrage of information and um, the funny thing is actually when I did this course the first time around I knew some of you already so I kind of knew where you were coming from so I, I kind of got whether you were with me or not. This time I've no idea who many of you are and uh, what church streams you're from and what your backgrounds are so, um, so I don't want to assume that you are with me or that this is not completely new or baffling so let's just pause for a second and um, any, any questions on anything i said so far? Is this making sense? Great. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to trust that you're not lying to me. That's great. I mean, your faces say otherwise, but that's okay. No, great. Okay, well, let's plough on. And of course, there'll be other times for questions as well. So, I mean, that was was quite broad. But actually, if we are (coughs) to start engaging with Scripture, we need some particular tools. And I want to suggest just two tools that we need for engaging with scripture uh, or two disciplines as it were that are involved whether we know it or not they are involved with the way you read scripture you may never have thought of this before but you have done these two things whether you've done them well or not I don't know Um, but you have done these two things and they are exegesis and hermeneutics we're going to start with exegesis so exegesis is essentially um, grappling with what a text originally meant what was God's word? To the original audience, to the original hearers? What was God's word to them? And when we engage with a passage of scripture or a book of scripture, whatever it happens to be, whatever element it is, the first question we need to be asking is what did this text originally mean? What did it mean in the mind of the author? What did it mean to the people he, that author was writing to or about? What did it mean to them before we rush to what does it mean to me? Because actually, there's quite a leap to get there, and, and we have to. First, understand what it originally meant before we can apply it to our lives. So the first task of reading scripture is exegesis. It's it's like, what does this mean? How do I understand this passage properly? And if we are to grapple with that, I think there are some big questions to ask. Questions about context and questions about content. And I'm I'm not going to kind of go through all of this, but essentially I would suggest that if you are reading any particular passage of scripture... You should begin by asking some questions about context. And I I mean two aspects of context here. Firstly, historical context. So ask yourself over any passage you are reading, who, what, why, where, and when? Who, who are the author, who are the recipients? What is their relationship? Do they know each other? Like Paul writing to a particular church. Is it a church he planted? Is it a church he's only heard of? How does that relationship affect the way you read it? What, literally what has been written? That's always a good question to, to ask. What is actually these words in front of me? Um, How is it structured? What is the tone? Is it angry? Is it happy? Is it encouraging? Whatever. Why was it written? What's the purpose of it being written? And sometimes you look for internal evidence, like the letter may tell you this is why it's written, or sometimes you need to look for external evidence. So um, with some of the letters that Paul writes, for example, actually, if you read through the book of Acts, you get a sense of the churches. And then when you read the letter, you're like, oh, I think he wrote that because of that experience that I read there. it's still internal to Scripture, but it's external evidence in the sense that the letter hasn't told you, but you can find out the purpose elsewhere. Ask where, where, where was the author? Where is the recipient? Like, where in the world is this? Um, was the author close to them? Was the author currently in jail writing it to them? Uh, were they in Jerusalem at the time? Were they in exile? In, in which case, how, how does that affect what has been written and why it's been written? And then, when? When was it written? Um, both literally, like. In time, but also within the grand story, uh, is it a period when they are when Israel is flourishing, or a period where they're in exile? All these sort of things are important. So historical context. But then it's also worth asking questions about the literary context, by which I mean um, within this big library of scripture, uh, where does this fit? What category does it fit in? What is the genre that I'm reading here? Is this narrative? Is it law? Is it uh, prophecy is it poetry? In which case, I probably need to engage with it differently. Um, in fact, I won't go through this. But if you flick to the next page for a moment, um, I, I've broken down the different categories: narrative, law, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic, gospel, and epistle. And I've given a few sort of things to bear in mind when approaching those different genres. Um, and we, we we don't have time to go through them. And actually, to be honest, that's what you're going to do over the next two years anyway. So I'm not too worried about that. Um, but that's a kind of helpful cheat sheet if you knew what those summaries meant (laughs) Uh, feel free to come and ask me I'll happily chat through but but it's worth asking what is the genre and then therefore how do I need to uh, understand this genre differently from others and then ask yourself a question if you're reading a particular chapter um, what is the context within the the broader piece of literature that it's part of so if I'm reading chapter 11 of a whatever book I need to ask what's the immediate context Um, what's the the bit around this verse like the verse is either side and the paragraph of it which is part and the chapter of which it's part and then how does that fit within the the whole book of which it's part and then how does that fit within the maybe the author's work of which it's part so if I'm reading Ephesians 4 2 um, how does that fit within the rest of Ephesians 4 how does that fit within actually the section of Ephesians that Paul is writing has he changed from the beginning and the intro and the end and Like, what's that going on there? How does it fit within the whole letter of Ephesians? How does that fit within everything that Paul wrote? How does that fit within the New Testament? And so you start small and you work out, this is the work of of looking at literary context. So start by asking questions about historical context and literary context, uh, and then get into asking questions about the content. So once you've figured out where does this fit? What am I dealing with here? What kind of book or passage or, or verse? Then ask, well, what is the verse actually saying? ask for things uh, uh, to do with the content. And again, you can break it down into little bits and sort of work up. So look for things in the sentences that you're reading. So as you're reading a sentence, think, are there particular repeated words that come up again and again and again? Repetition gives you an idea of the key themes. If the writer is like, Joy, and joy, 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 and you come away thinking, what's this, it's about sin and the anger of God? No, 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 it's about joy, like there's a clue because the word is repeated a lot, like pick up those sorts of themes. And it may not be literally the same theme because sometimes an author may use lots of different synonyms, so he may talk about uh, joy and celebration and, and uh, adoration or whatever, and you're like, oh, together these give me an idea of the theme. So look for repetition and similarity. Look for contrasts and comparisons. For example, uh, the rich and the poor, or the the wages of sin and the free gift of eternal life, or the gospel, of the first Adam and the new Adam, or whatever it happens to be. Comparisons can really help us. Uh, Look for lists. Um, Ask yourself, why is this list in a particular order? Has it started with the most important one? Does it seem to build to a climax? What's going on there? Is it similar to other lists? Are they in the same order? Um, Cause and effect. uh, what things lead to another um, what is the cause of this particular thing? how has this come to be? are there any clues in the passages figures of speech um, are there metaphors here that I need to I need to figure out what the metaphor meant in the original context that may not be that today uh, conjunctions but for and therefore um Lots of people say, if you come across a therefore, always ask, what is the therefore Therefore, Like, it's not just there for a, a no reason at all. If, if Paul, he does it all the time. Therefore, and often we, if we're preaching through a chapter a, a week, uh, going through scripture in our Sunday sermons, for example, loads of, you know, we might be working through Romans, and loads of our Sunday sermons start with, therefore. I encourage you to X, Y, and Z. And the preacher just starts there. It's like, no, 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 hang on. The therefore is therefore a reason because it follows on from last week. So I almost need to start by going back. Like, what was the last chapter? Because that sets up the reason for this chapter. Ask these kinds of questions of sentences. Verbs, where's the action in the sentence? Pronouns, like who is speaking and to whom uh, is uh, is it talking to individuals is it talking to a group we often because we read scripture and want to know how it applies to us we read it as if it's written to me actually there may be plural um so jesus teaching uh, we read the sermon on the Mount. And it's like oh this is how i pray no, no jesus was teaching a crowd this is how you pray oh that tells me that prayer is meant to be a communal thing as well as individual that puts a different spin on it right so think who is speaking to whom are they speaking and so on to be clear, this may feel like an English lesson, and I don't do this every time I'm reading the Bible. Like I don't sit down there with a tick list and go, uh, "Where's the verb? Okay, there we go, and <laughs> do that." Uh, oh, a the, the conjunction there. Like I, I don't do that. But actually, these are the kind of tools that we need to build into ourselves, like uh, just intuitively over time, if we are to really understand the content properly. So that's what you may want to ask over a sentence but then you broaden it out and look at paragraphs and think what are the the sort of general and specific details, like what's the key thing and what's just not so major in Paul's thinking in this particular paragraph, what are the, the primary emphases, are there questions and answers, um, particularly in the epistles, Paul will regularly include a question and it's worth asking, is that a question that Paul has or is that a question that the Corinthians ask that Paul has put there because he then wants to engage with it? Are they rhetorical questions or in, in which the answer is meant to be obvious or are they questions that are left open or are they questions that then get answered later in the letter? Um, when there's dialogue it's worth asking like who is actually speaking here? Is this God? Is this uh, God speaking to an individual or to Israel or, or, or whatever he happens to be? Are there emotional terms that are going on there um, and are they designed to create a reaction in us? What's the tone? I'm reading through 2 Corinthians at the moment in my uh, devotions and there is a lot of sarcasm in 2 Corinthians and, uh, and when you get that and you read it like with a sarcastic sort of tone, uh, a godly sarcastic tone, um, which is designed to actually bring about repentance, I think. Um, you read it like that and you think, oh, Paul, you're, you're actually trying to highlight something of the folly of the Corinthians thinking to bring them to repentance. That changes the way I read this thing that otherwise just sounds like you're being a bit of a whatever. So, uh, like, it, just understanding the tone helps you to engage with the text differently. Um, loads of other things we could say. Things to look for in discourses, so longer sections. What are the connections between the paragraphs and the episodes? Um, Are there story shifts? Are there breaks and pivots where where actually it does, for whatever reason, completely change? And there is no link between the two chapters. It's literally just gone on a different direction, and that's the author's intent. Um, Are there things that are put together, juxtaposed, because they want to tell us something? Um, And why are they put together? Is it because um, we get to this when we teach you down the Gospels actually, but like, there are loads of occasions where there seems to be a miracle next to a teaching. And you can think, oh, is that just because they happened, like one after another? No, probably wasn't. They're probably put together because the miracle tells you something about the teaching or the teaching tells you something about the miracle, either because they're telling you the same message or because they're showing uh, the opposite. So um, a blind man (coughs) gets healed and receives his sight. And that's next to something where Jesus tells the Pharisees off for being like blind guides. And it's like, oh, actually, they tell you the opposite because this man gets healed and this man gets hardened in his blindness. So it's worth asking, why are these things next to each other. Um, and then look for chiasms, which none of us look for. But to be honest, there are, um, sometimes you read through a commentary, if you read through scholars talking about how to understand a particular section, they may say, this is a, arranged in a, um, a chiastic format, which goes sort of A, B, C, C, B, A. And it, there are structures to particular ways that things are written, which can be helpful, but can also be very boring. And I rarely read through and go, oh, there's a chiasm. Like, like I, I often don't think about the technical structure, but um, there are structures that are helpful, particularly with the poetry, like when we read I'll come to you in a sec. I have, yeah. um, when we read poetry today, there are often structures to the way that poems are written. And the same is true with the Psalms or, or letters and things like that. And once you know that, it can actually help you to get things about what the author is intending. Most of the time, it doesn't matter too much, but I just put it in there because um, you may come across it. So, yeah. Sorry. What was your question? Yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah. So it's a structure. Um, it's a particular s- structure where... Um, uh, say you have five lines um, that are written down there and you were to give them letters, so line one might be A, um, and then B, and then C, and then the fourth line you might call B because it actually is somehow a reflection of line two, and then the fifth line is a reflection of line A. So in poems, for example, they may start with blah, 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 blah something like that, and then it goes back, and it picks up the theme there, and repeats it, or changes it in another way, and then, so it's just a sort of structural thing, and you read commentaries, and people talk about it all the time, and you're like, what is this, and and most of the time, it's not especially relevant, (laughs) Uh, but sometimes those kind of structural things can help you, but um, yeah. Okay, that again, a barrage of information to you there, and I'm not saying that your quiet times now need to feel like GCSE English, uh, particularly if you have bad memories of studying English at school. Um, but actually, and I don't do this most of the time that I read scripture any day, but actually when I'm preaching, because I really want to get to a text and I want to really understand it, sometimes what I do is I know I'm preaching in a particular passage, I'll print it out and I'll print it double spaced, so I've got lots of space, and I'll underline what are the key words here and, Oh wow, that word there gets used again down here. I wonder if there's a reason for that. I wonder what, if there's a reason why he started and ended the chapter on that particular theme, even though there's stuff in between that takes you in a different direction. I wonder why that uh, word keeps getting repeated and, and oh, there's a bit of dialogue here. Is, is that actually Paul or is that someone else? Oh, it's someone else. I hadn't realised that. That changes everything. So when you break it down like that, it can be really helpful. I'm not saying you should do that in your quiet time, but, but do ask questions. Um, of scripture engage with the context and engage with the content and you'll probably find certain things are really helpful as a result and the aim of this when you're doing exegesis um i think the aim could could kind of be to get to a point where you can summarize what you've just read in a sentence so not go like here are all the conjunctions here are the verbs and like don't worry about that that's a means to an end the end should be that you read a passage and if someone said what was that about today you can say paul encouraged the ephesians to do x and that's it and your summary shouldn't be longer than the actual text. What I love, or I don't love, I find quite funny, is when you get a book on like Philippians or something like that, a commentary on Philippians, and the commentary's that fat, and Philippians is like that, and you're like, oh, there's a lot of detail in there. Like, now, I'm not saying create stuff that is more intense than, than what you've actually written, but go through this process of grappling with it so that you can get to a point where you can summarise it in a, script, in a sentence. That, I think, is the task of exegesis. And note, you're not saying, Paul is telling them, therefore, I should do. Exegesis is just, what is the original writer saying to them? How would people have understood it then? Does that make sense? Go through it, yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah good question uh, so the question uh, for those who didn't hear the podcast was about well Eugene Peterson when he put together the message he did it in group exegesis so with people from his church not necessarily scholars what's is that helpful is, what's the value of that um, I didn't know that actually about the message and uh, I've not uh, I've not heard that not, I don't know much about it to be honest So, um, but that doesn't surprise me actually and I think it can be a beautiful thing um, and actually scripture was not designed to be read by individuals in isolation, leather bound, sitting there in your morning for a set quiet time. Like if that's not how it was meant to be done. And and actually through, uh, sorry, I keep moving. So the person I'm talking to has to move their head. Sorry, I'll stand here. Um, uh, Actually, I think scripture should be um, read in community. I sort of think that's how it's designed. Um, Paul sent a letter to the Corinthians. He didn't send a hundred letters to each of the Corinthians. Like he sent something that's meant to be read out together and discussed and uh, explained. And uh, the rabbis were regularly grappling with bits of the Old Testament. Like, how do we understand this? How do we apply this? And uh, I think exegesis is great when it's done together. And there are perspectives that we may have um, that that help someone else. And things that I might just I might not be able to get somewhere on a particular text. And then someone from a different um, age or a different um, nationality or a different socioeconomic background will just be like, well, if you were in my shoes, this would encourage you in this particular way. And particularly as, I mean, I love the fact that this is a diverse room, um, And uh, but at me as a white Western male, um, I am very distant from the original authors and the original context. And, and I need to hear um, I need to hear different voices. I need to hear minority voices, helping me to understand what it would have felt like for people uh, to, to, to get this sort of text and to grapple with these sorts of themes because I won't get it if I just read it through my le- lens. We need each other. So I think group exegesis can be really helpful. Um, yeah, I pray that. Second point, when we do on this course, or is it something we should go off and try and make Well, I think we will do it, um, when, when we get into the, some of the exercises, um, I will get you sitting there together and talking about a little passage Together, And some of you will already have an idea of what the passage means and some of you have no idea and, and, uh, and it may, may be quite helpful. I would say um, we need to do both and. So I read scripture privately and personally, um, but I also love doing it in a group because sometimes I just, I just don't know. Or sometimes I think I do know <laughs> and actually it's not until I read it with someone else that I realise, oh, I got that wrong. And actually someone else's insights really helped me in a way. So yeah, I would encourage you to do both. Yeah. Any other questions at this point? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Could culture affects exegesis or mm. somehow, culture of people? Today, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Our uh, culture definitely affects our exegesis. Um, I think I would say because exegesis is primarily trying to figure out what God's Word was to them, yeah. not to us, yeah. our culture shouldn't affect exegesis so much as it affects hermeneutics, which is what we'll come to later, which is how it then applies to us. So, um, because I'm trying to figure out what the original author meant to the original recipients, I'm trying to get into their culture at that moment. Um, Now, in doing that, I've got to somehow detach myself from my culture, so obviously my culture is going to affect the way I read Scripture, and that may be different from yours, but, um, uh, but I think because exegesis is trying to get into what it originally meant, um, I'm sort of wanting to step outside of my own culture for the moment and then our culture affects more when we try and apply it to our own lives which we'll come to in a minute but great question. Okay let's, um, let's, uh, let's, let's take a break now I'm a little over time um, I see the hand but uh, uh, we, we can chat during the break or, or maybe start at the, the beginning of the next session. Uh, we've got 15 minutes um, so I understand there's tea, coffee, pastries at the back. Um, go for it. Thank you to everyone who, has, uh, who spoke to me in the break and said, I am with you. Sorry if my face is not, inc- <laughs> is not communicating that. That's just my concentrating face. Uh, good. That's good to know. I will stop making judgments on your faces. Uh, not that I'm judging your faces. You've got beautiful faces. Uh, all of you have beautiful faces. I'm glad to hear you're with me. But, um, but let me just take a moment. Um, I'll, I'll finish the exegesis thing in a second. But uh, there may be questions that people have that you that would be helpful just to kind of grapple with now. So if, having reflected in the break, there are some things that are confusing to you um, and it's worth sort of talking about them now, let's just take a couple of moments to do that before we move on. Any questions? Fine if the answer is no, we'll have plenty more opportunities, but. Great, okay, well let's continue. Um, So we're still talking here at this point about um, exegesis and the idea of reading God's story and understanding it not primarily as a story about us, um, uh, but a story about God and about what He is doing in the world, and I just want to um, think a little bit about what the story is and how it helps us to think of Scripture as a narrative. So, when we are reading any particular passage, we're wanting to do good exegesis. We're wanting to think, what do the um, what do the words mean in this passage? Uh, why were they written? Who were they written to? All that sort of stuff. Um, but then also, we're not just reading it in isolation. We're not just reading it. In the context of that particular book we 're reading it within the context of the grand story of scripture and so it 's worth asking um, what is the narrative of scripture and it's worth, we have to sort of bear in mind that actually in any passage we 're reading and actually with the whole of scripture, there is more than one narrative going on <laughs> uh, there is one overall storyline which I've said is creation for redemption restoration we'll sort of unpack that again in a minute Um, but there are also other storylines going on at different levels and so I want to suggest three levels of narrative that make up the story of scripture and this may feel a bit technical but I hope it will be helpful um and I hope it will help well we'll come to a practical reason why it's useful um, towards well the bottom of this page um I think there are three levels of narrative going on in scripture maybe more the meta-narrative, the grand narrative, uh, is the universal plan of God, his story of redemption. And if I'm trying to say what is the story of Scripture at the biggest level, the broadest level, I'd say is creation for redemption, restoration. God made a good world, something went wrong with the world, he's launched a plan to deal with the world, uh, and, uh, and he will make the world new again. That's the, the, the grand story. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and, and I realised um, last year I was like, ah, oh, next year I will put page numbers on my notes, and I didn't. So, note to self, which I will forget by two years' time, page numbers on the notes. Uh, it's the one that says, uh, God's story, three levels of narrative, and then it's got the boxes with the numbers next to it. <laughs> no, I, am, I am a fool. Sorry, I will um, endeavour to sort that the next time. Um, Great. So the grand story of scripture, I think, is uh, to do with the purpose of God um, in the world. His plan for the whole world is a story of creation for redemption and restoration. But then, actually, if we kind of, and this kind of comes to the question that came from the back earlier. Um, if we then think about it at a different level, I think there is a narrative of election uh, going on in Scripture as well. Because one of the themes that we find running through Scripture is that God has always wanted a people for himself. And the way he has got that has looked different at different points in the story. So a, a sort of election narrative, as it were, um, is a narrative that talks about God choosing and redeeming a people for his name. And if you think of the story of Scripture through the lens of God choosing people for his name, then you find it falls into slightly different categories than the creation, for redemption, restoration one. For example, Old Testament, New Testament. Old Covenant, New Covenant. There were two different uh, covenants or two different sort of ways of engaging uh, and rules of engagement that God had for his people. Old Covenant and New Covenant. And that breaks down even further. Because in within the Old Covenant story, um, you have God electing people and redeeming them in slightly different ways. So Genesis, for example, begins with God creating Adam and Eve... Uh, And I won't get into the technicalities of how and how long that took and all that sort of stuff. You can cover that next uh, next month. Uh, But there is something about God choosing a people, whether he created them as the first people or there were already people and he selected them, whatever narrative you take. The point of it is that God wanted people who reflected him. And so these people he breathed his spirit into and somehow he elected them as his representatives, his image bearers. But then you get the story of Abraham and God chooses him in a slightly different way. He calls him out from a pagan nation um, and he uh, gives him promises, promises of a family, promises of a land, promises of a future and so on. And out of him, it is clear that he's not just choosing one or two people, he's choosing a nation. So election has sort of moved on in some sense or changed to the election of a nation. Then that nation just gets into an absolute mess, ends up in Egypt. and various other places as well and God has to rescue the nation and so again the story of election takes on a different exodus sort of flavour as it were takes them to the promised land and then election just feels different once you're in a land and if you read through the story of election uh, you find that it's different that there's a different way of dividing up the story the narrative of scripture and of course that continues on into the new covenant as well with us as individuals and us as a church so that's a different sort of level of narrative that's going on you okay there? (laughs) Um, Good, good, good. Um, and then at the bottom as well you have a a different sort of level of narrative uh, which is the micro narrative which is that there are smaller stories going on within the big story. So you've got the whole story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration but then you've also got little stories as well that happen all the time which may take a chapter or a portion of a chapter or a couple of chapters or, or a whole book. They fit within the grand story but they are little complete stories of themselves. For example, um, let's take Abraham. Uh, Abraham is, you could talk about the story of Abraham, but actually, the story of Abraham is a collection of stories of Abraham, right? Because it's a compound narrative. That is, it's a whole load of different stories that are put together. So you've got the story of Abraham's life, but within that, you've got the story of Abraham's life before he was called, the story of him when he was called, the story of him getting the promises, the story of him. Being a fool and uh, and not trusting in the promises of the story of him in Egypt, the story of him with Lot, the story of, you know, various different aspects of the story which are micro-narratives. That is, they're little stories that fit within the meta-narrative, the big story. So. And, and what's interesting there is that the Abraham, like, let's take, for example, uh, Abraham and Lot is a micro-narrative, a tiny story which fits within the broader story of election of God choosing Abraham for the purpose of having a people, which fits within the grand story of what? Creation, form, redemption, restoration. Where does it fit in that? It's in the fall section, isn't it? Because we're in the fallen world. And so there are different levels of narrative going on, but they interact in some way. And actually, I think when we are reading a particular passage of scripture, one helpful way to think about it is to read it up through the levels of narrative, as it were. So I'm reading this particular bit about... Lot and Abraham and so I start there and I'm like okay what does this mean and I do my good exegesis and I think about the words and I think about what the author is trying to say in the context and content and all that sort of stuff and then I say well actually how does that fit within uh, Abraham's life and and that helps me um, and then I think well actually where is Abraham in the story of election well he's not you know, he's not there in the garden uh, and he's not in the church so I can't read him like the church because God was engaging with him in a different way to how he engages with With the church. So I have to read him at that point in the story, which is here in election. And actually, where is that within the creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Well, it's in the fall section. So I can't think of him like Adam and Eve before they've fallen with their particular nature. There's something about him, but Jesus hasn't yet come. So I can't read him through the lens of Jesus. So I read up through the narrative and I find where that sort of Lot and Abraham story fits within the grand story of scripture by going up the levels, as it were. And that can open up all sorts of interesting things. It means that I can't read the Abraham and Lot story as if uh, he is living in the new covenant like I am. <laughs> like, I mean, simple point, but like reading up through the levels, you realise, oh yeah, he's there and, and, oh, and he's fallen. Jesus hasn't yet come. And so that gives me a way of placing that tiny story within the grand story of scripture. Does that make sense? Yes? Good. Yes, sir. I love being called sir. That's good. Uh, from now on, everyone must call me sir. <laughs> yes. Uh sir, if, if you can call me sir. <laughs> I'm kidding, go for it. <laughs> sorry, can I sorry I can't quite hear if you look at boxes one and two, uh the whole of the whole universal planet got in the election. Yep. 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 well um let are you asking specifically about salvation do I think all people whether all people will be saved so that's um I mean that's an interesting question um but I it's uh, not not what I'm trying to get out here so um so let me try and phrase this a different way I think I would say and I don't believe that everyone gets saved either <laughs> um so I can, I'm sure you do a day on the doctrine of salvation at some point. Um, I believe it's quite clear not everyone will be saved. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about here. So here, what I'm thinking is the top level is actually not about people. Um, the interesting thing is we often read scripture as if it's all about people. It's not. It's not. Actually, God, said, God made creation. It's like, oh, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. Before we were even on the scene, like everything was good without us. And, uh, and actually, even when we come on the scene and God says it's very good, uh, we go, ah, oh, there you go, we were very good. No, what he's saying is, all my world, everything from day one to here, including this, is good. So, so we read scripture through a really anthropocentric view, that is like we focus on humans. Um, actually, that's not, not the point. Um, and so what I'm thinking here is that the creation, for redemption, restoration story is equally applicable to the ground and physicality and trees and animals and all of creation here. So so God is, is talking about his plan to redeem all things here. And then within that, you've got to say, well, um, what's the role for humanity? And actually, God particularly wanted people for himself. And so, so when I think of universal salvation, I actually think of God saving everything. (laughs) Um, I'm not primarily thinking about people at this point. I'm thinking of God's plan to renew all things. And within that, you've got to ask, well, what does it mean for humans? And I think it's good. I think it's clear that God is calling particular people to be himself, but not everyone will respond to that call. And so not everyone will be part of the final salvation. You see what I mean? Um, Let me tease out why I think this is quite important actually thinking about these levels of narrative because maybe you're like this is not important at all (laughs) um uh, jesus says that scripture points to him right jesus says the whole story of scripture points to him Uh, and he says that in various different places i mean john 5 he talks to about um He talks to people who are like, you are reading this thinking that you're going to get the answers, but actually this whole story was pointed to me and and you're missing the fact that I'm the one (laughs) who you can find life in. And so Jesus is saying the whole story builds to him. But it's worth asking, well, which level of narrative is pointing to Jesus? Um, Is it the whole grand story? Is it the story of election? Is it the micro narratives which are pointing to Jesus? Because the the way that you think about that will affect the way that you read um, scripture. So, show of hands. Um, I'm going to give you each of the three options. Who thinks that when Jesus is talking about um, the story of Scripture pointing to himself, who thinks he is primarily talking about the meta-narrative, the grand story of Scripture? Show of hands. Great. Okay. And he might be saying... Well, actually, I'll give that as a fourth option He's saying all of them. No, no, you're all going to say that, aren't you? (laughs) That's a catch-all. Okay. Um, Who thinks he's primarily talking about the story of election, the story of God calling people for himself as, as pointing to him? A tentative one, but <laughs> quickly retracted. Um, probably because you're thinking actually it's more than that as well, yeah. Um, who thinks it's the micro-narratives, like the little stories, all of those are pointing to Jesus? You're all just really afraid of me just going, no, you're wrong, aren't you? Like, because I know some of you are thinking it's the micro-narratives and you're not saying... And actually, if I say, right, no, I'm not going to give you the option of all of them, okay? Let's, like, you've got to go for one of these three camps, okay? Who thinks it's the meta-narrative, the grand story of Scripture? Okay, who thinks it's the story of election, of God saving people for himself? Okay, we're getting some shows ahead now. Who thinks the micro-narratives, like every little story, is pointing to Jesus? Okay, yeah, yeah, a number of them. Now, in one sense, kind of all of those are true, but... I think, actually, is primarily thinking of the grand story of Scripture. And I think it's really important to think of that. I think there are little stories that point directly to Jesus. But if you think that every single little story is somehow pointed to Jesus, that will, I think, skew the way you read Scripture. And so sometimes people talk about um, a Christocentric reading of Scripture. Maybe you've come across that word, and if you haven't, well... You've probably done fine without knowing that ridiculously big word. But basically, a Christocentric way. When people talk about reading scriptures Christocentrically, what they're saying is, I want to read it so that every every bit points to Christ. I want to find out how every bit points to Christ. I want to do that because Jesus said it all points to him, okay? But it's worth asking, in what way does it point to him? And some people read scripture Christocentrically uh, with an assumption that every little micro-narrative, every little tiny bit of a story points directly to Jesus. And if you read it like that, then you can get into some weird exegesis where it's like, where's Jesus in this story? Is he behind this bush? Is he, is he the rock that Joshua sat on? Or is he the, you know, um, uh, must I make every little detail somehow point to Jesus? To Jesus. Oh, there was a coin there. Uh, what can I, Oh, Jesus once talked about a coin. That, that's the way to Jesus. Oh, like. I just think you can get into a weird way of reading scripture that sort of panics if you're like, I can't find Jesus here. Like, it's okay if you don't find Jesus in the details of the micro-narrative because the micro-narrative is part of a grand narrative and he's in that, right? Because the whole story of creation, for redemption, restoration, that whole thing is pointing to Jesus. So rather than a, I mean, actually I think the word Christocentric is totally fine. I'm not having a go at that. But there's a slightly more geeky word, Christotelic readings of scripture. And I think this is more helpful because the Greek word telos means a god. Goal or an end. And when you read scripture, um, not thinking like every passage has to, to somehow centre around Jesus, um, but rather the overall goal of all of scripture, the overall end to which all of scripture is pointing is Jesus, that changes it a little bit. I'm not worried about, oh, is Jesus like hiding behind this thing? <laughs> like I'm saying, how does this story of, let's say, Abraham and Lot fit within the grand story of election and then creation, fall, redemption, restoration, of which Jesus is the fulfilment. So I'm not looking like, oh, Abraham and Lot, where's Jesus in that story? Um, I'm saying, how does that story fit within the big story of which Jesus is the telos, the goal, the end? Does that make sense? So I do think that Jesus is the goal and the end of every story. And I do think that every time I preach, I am wanting to help people show how Jesus is the answer to the question. But that's not by going, did you spot him? Here he is. Jesus is the sheep. Or Jesus is like, like, that can just twist things. What I'm doing is I'm saying this story fits within that story and Jesus is the end of that story. Actually, all of our stories fit within that story and Jesus is the answer to all our stories. Does that make sense? Great. So uh, so when I'm reading Scripture, I may want to ask myself these four questions around the, uh, the bottom of this page, page number, whatever it is. Um, I may want to ask this. How does this story, whichever story it is I'm reading, fit within the meta-narrative of redemption of which Christ is the goal? And then I may want, to, may want to ask, Well, what words or concepts does this story contribute to later interpretation of the life of Christ? So, for example, if I'm reading this and it's something to do with a sacrifice... I might want to go, well, that's interesting. Like, Does Jesus have anything to say or do about sacrifices? Of course he does. Of course he does. And so there are things in that story that I want to read through the lens of Jesus. So I do want to read them up and then through that story. Um, and then I might want to ask what view of God that we later find embodied in Christ can we see here? Because God is the person who never changes, right? Any story, the culture's changed, practicalities change, language changes, God never changes. So it's the same God that we see running through all of scripture supremely revealed in Jesus. So if I'm reading something and it's telling me something of the character of God, I may want to ask the question, how is that character reflected in Jesus? Or how does Jesus give us a broader idea of the character of God here? And then I may want to ask myself a sort of election question. How was God's calling and redemption of his people in this moment, similar or even different to how he calls and redeems us now. And what difference has Jesus made in that? So by doing that, it's just a responsible way of placing the little stories within the broad story in a way that doesn't just get a bit weird. Um, that's not to say that there aren't incredible foreshadowings. The crushing of the serpent's head, of course, somehow points to Jesus. The prophecies that are just about minute details that get fulfilled in his life absolutely I'm not denying any of that I'm just saying um, if we're to try and get to Jesus from the stories without getting weird in the process the way to do it is to take the little story up to the grand story creation for redemption and restoration of which he is the end he is the goal Uh, that's the way we do it does that make sense Mm -hmm. let me give you therefore just as we finish off the sort of exegesis section um, one example and turn to the next page and um, you don't really need to look at this because I'll sort of read it out, but um, you may find this interesting later. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I imagine most of us are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, I won't ask you to, but I imagine if I were to ask you to summarise the parable of the Good Samaritan, you probably could, right? And actually, if I gave you time and said, sit down with your Bible and go through all the stuff now, think about, like, who is it written by, who is it written to, what are the verbs, what are the... You know, you could come to a really good summary and understanding of the Good Samaritan, and probably the goal would be, as the goal is with exegesis, summarise it in a single sentence, and you could do a great job of that. And probably there'd be a lot of similarity around the room, maybe some slightly different themes, uh, but by and large we generally agree. I want to read you um, an explanation, an exegesis of the parable of the Good Samaritan by Augustine. Amazing theologian. In some sense, what I'm about to do is a cheap shot at an amazing theologian. I'm not dissing Augustine, but I just want to ask you the question. Do you think this is good exegesis of the parable of the Good Samaritan? This is what Augustine says. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant by that man. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes and dies. The thieves in the story are the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely of his immortality, and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead. Because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives. But insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify the priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord Jesus himself is signified by this man. The binding of his wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine, the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast, the animal on which he rode, is the flesh in which he deigned to come to us. The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church, where travellers returning to their heavenly country are refreshed after pilgrimage. The morrow, the next day, is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two pence, the, the two coins, are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and that which is to come. The innkeeper is the apostle Paul. The payment he made is either his counsel of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands, lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new though it was lawful for him to live by the gospel. That is his exegesis of the parable of the Good Samaritan. How similar would that have been to your summary of the parable of the Good Samaritan? <laughs> no, no one no? is no one is no one thinking that uh, it's all about celibacy. <laughs> like, is that good exegesis? No. Sorry, Augustine. I think you're great. I think you're amazing. That. But for me, that's, that's not a good exegesis. Why? Why? He's got his own philosophy and he's making that story fit All right, so he's got his own philosophy. Interestingly, his philosophy is actually sort of the story of Scripture, yeah. isn't it? It's he's not far off. Well, yeah, because it's got Adam and it's got the fall and it's got something being done about the fall, which includes Jesus' death and resurrection. And then it's got the church and the apostle Paul. and the uh, So it's not like he's just gone, what do I want to preach? Like he's taken the grand story of scripture, but he's just like crammed it into this thing rather than taking that little story and cramming it into the, you see what I mean? Other reasons why you think this is bad exegesis based on everything we talked about so far. Great. Okay, so he's not, he specifically ignored what Jesus said the story was about, right? Yeah, he's not taken into account the context. And by context, it's like, why did Jesus tell the story? And what did Jesus say the story was about? Why did Jesus tell the story? Well, actually, if you had it out in front of you, you would see that the reason Jesus told the story was because someone came to him and said, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't go, ignore that question. Let me tell you the story of everything. Like, he told the story in order to answer the question, Who is my neighbor? And then, what, what does he say at the end to the guy? He's like, Go and do the same. <laughs> he doesn't say, now you understand the story of everything. He says, now go and be kind to people. Go and be like the Good Samaritan. So there's a purpose that's there. Uh, so he hasn't taken into account the context. Other problems why it's not good exegesis. Yeah? Um, when the people that Jesus was talking to the story, they would be thinking about the Paul, was yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. So no, no one's sitting there like Jesus is telling the story and they're going, uh, here's this sinky oh, you mean Paul, (laughs) Paul, this guy we haven't met yet, or or maybe some of them didn't know, probably not, but like, oh, the Paul that that hates Christians, (laughs) yeah, I mean, they weren't Christians at all, but like, like, no one was thinking of Paul, no one was thinking of the church, (laughs) Uh, yeah, absolutely, no one was thinking of the resurrection, I mean, Jesus talked about the resurrection, I'm going to die and rise again, and and Peter's like, you're not going to (laughs) die, like, they couldn't, no one understood the resurrection at that point anyway, yeah, a whole load of things, uh, no one's sitting there going, oh, celibacy, that's what you're talking about, yeah. yeah. It feels anachronistic because it's talking about things that literally haven't happened. It would have made no sense to the original heroes, um, and, and it's like he's just sort of plucked things out of the air. So I think when we're reading things like the parables, and maybe this, maybe the parables are slightly particular, um, we might get to this, yeah, we'll probably, well, if I do the day, next year on, on the synoptics, um, uh, then, then we get to that, like how to interpret the parables. But well, one of the things that we do is we say, well, um, don't just go, hmm, what would I like wine to mean? Or what would I like a tree to mean? So what has it always meant in, in the Old Testament? You go back to there and you see how do the metaphors get used? Therefore, how was Jesus using them? And it seems like Augustine hasn't done that here. So I think this is bad exegesis. Um, and this is unhelpful. And as I say, in some senses, it's a cheap shot because Augustine is an amazing theologian in many ways. But that, I think, is a a particularly bad example, in order to highlight actually that we can get not far off at all. That I mean, I, I don't think I read scripture and ever come up with something quite as well articulated and wrong as that. Uh, but there are times when if I don't go through the process of genuinely asking the questions like, what does this actually mean? What would the original reader have thought? If I try and leap to what might it mean to me today, I'm going to end up with something akin to that. That's the point of exegesis. Exegesis is meant to, to help us to ask serious questions so that we engage with scripture as it was meant to be engaged with. Of course, that's not the end of the story. We need to then move on and and say, what does it mean to us today? And what does it mean in the light of the whole story of scripture? Uh, And and so on. But um, I hope that helps a little bit.